You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. The war in Ukraine has been raging for nearly nine months now, but the conflict between Ukraine and Russia has much deeper roots. In late 2013 and early 2014, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians took to the streets in protest against their own government's pro-Russian policies. The movement, known as the Maidan Uprising, led to the deaths of more than 100 people in Kyiv and the ousting of President Viktor Yanukovych. Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula in March 2014, driving the region into an ongoing conflict that would culminate in a full-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24, 2022. My guest today, actor, writer, and director Liev Schreiber, was just one of the millions of Americans watching the war unfold on television until he decided to turn his grief into action. Schreiber is a co-founder of the nonprofit Blue Check Ukraine. The group's mission is to fast-track financial resources directly to organizations providing support and life-saving aid to Ukrainians on the front lines. With such an impressive effort, I wanted to know more about Schreiber's advocacy work. What's an example of other things you were involved with? Not much. <laughs> you know, I, I did, I worked with uh, feeding, Harvest Feeding America just because I like to take the kids to, on Thanksgiving, we had this ritual where we'd go to the, you know, the... Soup kitchen. The soup kitchen on Bowery, and it was fun for the kids, and it was great for me, and it was a way of sort of showing them... Give. Yeah, right. Give something back. But this was the first one where I felt like I had to do it or I was going to lose my mind. Why? You know, the story is that I have Ukrainian ancestry, right? Like my grandparents. That's what I have written down on this piece of paper. (laughs) That's what gets me in the room. But the reality is I was watching the war on the couch with the kids, and I'm looking at my kids, and I'm thinking, A, about my own legacy as a person, as a man, as a father, and all of those things I'm thinking about. I'm looking at these guys who are, you know, like painters and graphic designers and custodians who are, you know, kissing their wives and children goodbye and getting on a bus to go fight in a war in which they're wildly outnumbered and outgunned. And I'm I'm thinking, well, those are Ukrainians, and, I'm, and am I Ukrainian at all? Could I say goodbye to my kids if I had to, if I were in some existential fight for our homes and our lives? And the answer was no, I, I couldn't do that. It's like, no, I'm I'm not Ukrainian. And then what am I? I'm American, right? And and I was just thinking about how much I take for granted as an American that my grandparents didn't, that they fought for the freedoms and the liberties that we have today and, and that their desire to live 
in a country where their children could aspire to become what I've become and, and do the things that I've been able to do. I owe them a debt for that. And it's that fight's being fought again in Ukraine. And the other thing that really captured my imagination about it is that the, the thing I struggle with here is that the incredible polarization we've got going in in this country in, in politics and the partisanship and the disinformation and the misinformation. And nowhere is that struggle clearer to me than in Ukraine. The disinformation that's coming about Ukraine. The disinformation. What we get in the American media. Yeah, I mean, it feels like with the decline of higher education in this country, politics have become like a team sport. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the reds and the blues and policy and all of the things that actually really matter to the people who go to the (laughs) polls to vote are irrelevant. It's just, did my team win or did your team win? And that's a... That seems like a uh, a terrible place to send my children, you know, and it's not how our democracy should function. And and I think what's going on in Ukraine is is an existential fight for democracy and those values, those values that we share, which which are the right to be who you want to be, to speak what language you want to speak, to go to what church you want to go to, to to raise your children the way you want to raise them. And for those people who don't know that, when Ukraine was a part of the Soviet Union before the breakup, mm-hmm. there were tremendous limitations and abuses there about what people's freedoms were in the Ukraine. There were, there were independently Ukrainian religious beliefs. So there was, un, under the Soviet system, yeah. they were pressed. And I think arguably until Maidan, the Russians were very much controlling the Ukrainian government. I think that's why Maidan happened. And I think once that uprising occurred and hundreds of thousands of people from every walk of life went to that square and said, no, we want to be part of the European community. We, re- we reject what this puppet dictator is, is proscribing for us. Putin annexed Crimea. <laughs> he was like, okay, it's trouble. I've got to, you know. In 1994, as part of the... Uh, Salt talks and you know uh, anti-nuclear proliferation. Russia and the U.S. signed an agreement with Ukraine that if they they were the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world, and we signed an agreement with them that we pledged to protect their borders and their sovereignties, both America and Russia, which is part of why we're still in this. Russia ratified that again in 2009, and as you know, in 2014. So so basically. Ukraine gave up its entire nuclear arsenal and its ability to protect itself, which was always the design, I suppose, or at least it seems that way in retrospect, looking at what Putin's done. And so in 2009, Putin ratified that. And then after Maidan, annexed Crimea. And here we are now. I don't want to state the obvious, which is that in in America, people either don't really care or they don't care enough or, or they don't have good information. And how would you describe the historic and maybe even spiritual connection between the Ukrainians and the Russians. And what I mean by that is not the Russian leadership. Do the Ukrainians feel any kinship with the Russian people between the two people and they hate Putin and the government? Or are they indifferent or actively hostile toward the Russian people? I'm no expert on this by any stretch of the imagination. You know, a guy who's really, really smart about this is Timothy Snyder. From what I know from traveling to Ukraine over the past year, there's a tremendous amount of uh, ill will from the average Ukrainian to the average Russian. Having said that, I think there are plenty of Russians, as we can see from the little bit of news that makes its way out of Moscow, who are profoundly against what's happening in Ukraine. And I suppose... The tragedy of all of this is they are brothers, you know. They are so closely related, so closely tied. That's what I thought. Yeah. And the reality is that for, for many, many years, most Ukrainians, well, most people in Eastern Europe, they spoke Russian and they intermixed and all of that until their, uh, I think really Maidan was a kind of defining moment where people said, we want to be Ukrainian, we want a Ukrainian government, we want sovereignty, and we want to speak our own language. Because you you want to believe with the limited information I have, you you kind of sit there in a very armchair way and go, God, the Russians could probably go into Ukraine and just flatten the whole place in like a month. They're going to turn the whole place into an ashtray and, uh, you know, start changing the signs into Cyrillic and we're on our way. And then you realize, is it a case of fully engaged Ukrainians, they're in this, 
And the Russians are kind of coming down there. A lot of them are pretty half-hearted about it. A lot of them don't want to go. And, you're, and, and Putin is now reaping what he sows in this department that a lot of these Russian fighters really are like, I got no problem. It's like Muhammad Ali, I got no problem with the Vietnamese. Is Abs- that what's happening? Absolutely. Right. You know, the Ukrainians are in an existential fight. The Russians don't know what they're doing there. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Certainly not that existential. You know, they, remember they intercepted all of those telephone calls between those soldiers and their mothers, and they was like, Mom, you wouldn't believe the carpentry here. The toilet seats are amazing. You know what I mean? And these Ukrainians, they've got no choice. They win or they die. Right. They win or they have no home. They win or they have nowhere to live. They, don't, they can't raise their children. They can't do anything. It's over. It's the end of their country. You started Blue Check with some partners. Yeah. The war starts in February. You start Blue Check in March. Yeah, late March, yeah. And what, 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 how did that happen? Like, who do you call first? How do you start Blue Check? Fortunately, I'm not the brains behind this. I had, there's two guys with 30 years of experience in humanitarian aid. A friend of mine from drama, Yale Drama School called me, Harris Fishman, and he, wanted, he asked me if I would do a live stream, like, podcasty thing with Ukrainians so that they could tell their stories and what they were experiencing. And it just didn't feel right to me. I just, I didn't like the idea of, I, you know, I was just seeing too much of that on the news, the idea of exploiting people's emotions to kind of show what's going on. And it felt wrong, and I thought I would be nervous and uncomfortable in that situation. So I, I sort of gruffly said to my friend Harris, if you want to help him, just give him some money. And I got off the call. <laughs> and uh, So these guys called me back. One of them's named Jason Cohn. He's the chief public policy officer for Robin Hood now, and he used to be one of the executive directors of uh, Doctors Without Borders. And another guy that he works with, Michael Goldfarb, was a communications person for Doctors Without Borders as well. And this guy, Murphy Poindexter, who is, uh, as far as I can tell, like deep in the IC community in Washington, um, but was working at a place called the U.S.-Ukraine Foundation. And they said, were you serious about what you said, that you wanted to raise money for Ukraine? And I was like, oh, shit, someone's just called my bluff. And I said, yeah, I am. And uh, we quickly put together a plan that, I mean, these guys had just a ton of, between between them, 30 years of experience in humanitarian aid. And the idea was that we were going to identify the people on the ground in Ukraine, boots on the ground, NGOs, who were doing the work to provide humanitarian aid and get the money directly to them. I had heard of a philanthropy app called uh, GiveWell, and I thought, that's a good model. Why don't we try to do something like that, where people can see where everything we do is transparent. And we wouldn't exist without Ropes and Gray, who is an international law firm that agreed to do all of our verification and vetting pro bono. And they came on and have just been amazing. And so a few days after that, I bought a plane ticket, and I, I went to Poland. And I, I started working. <laughs> I was insane. I didn't know what I was doing. But I called Jose Andres, who's a friend. I was working at his spot in Poland on the border, uh, World Central Kitchen, making, you know, borscht for the refugees, <laughs> stirring giant. I see Jose, Jose Andres in some loud, cacophonous thing. And he's like, Liev, how are you doing, my friend? Yes, my friend, brother. When are you coming over? You coming? <laughs> and you go. Uh, you know, I went and and then and and we sort of I just bought the plane ticket and then we figured out what we were going to do once I got there. And Murphy, who was working at U.S. Ukraine Foundation, and Michael and Jason have all of these connections because of their humanitarian aid work. And they set up all these meetings for me with NGOs and people who were doing work on the ground in Ukraine. And I just went in and I met them, and it was extraordinary. I mean, I. <sighs> Just the resilience and the courage of these people, the fighting spirit of these people is extraordinary. It's no wonder to me that they're they're kicking ass and taking names. Frankly, I just well, that's what I saw, and I I so I I brought a cameraman with me because I knew that the next step was going to be go home and raise money, right? And um, we filmed people like Yolanta Prashalik at the uh, Lviv National Symphony, who's got this uh, you know seventy piece orchestra who can't do concerts anymore because of the pandemic and because of the war and so they're rehearsing they rehearse at night and during the day they've cleared out all the seats in the theater and the place is stacked to the ceiling with boxes of medical aid and food and clothing and things like that and the day that I arrived there with a camera I opened the doors to that theater and they're rehearsing Mozart's Requiem and you can imagine that site as there's like eight foot high boxes of aid 
and these people playing Mozart's Requiem, which is one of my favorite pieces of music. And it was just extraordinary footage and brought it home. And we started raising money. We did a benefit in D.C. where we we had the Washington National Opera Orchestra playing, and they played along in sync with my video. Of, Live to picture, as we say. It was fantastic. Yeah. It was just That's fantastic, cool. yeah. And that kind of got us on our way and, you know, doing a couple of CNN interviews and things like that and getting the word out there and having friends like you and being able to do things like this has just made it work. You flew over there the first time when? April. And you were there for how long? Two or three weeks. And the Polish-Ukrainian border, you're on the Polish side. Initially, yeah. And and, and you go into Ukraine, obviously, because you go to the, the, the concert hall. What did you see? You know, what? And there wasn't a lot happening in Lviv, and I didn't go past Lviv at that point. So I didn't I didn't see much. Refugees fleeing. Exa- well, I saw a lot of refugees because I was on the border. I went to a bunch of field hospitals that were unfortunately too far away from the action. Uh, I met with health ministers, and I met with a few of the NGOs that we were eventually going to sign on and uh, give grants to. And I, I saw this, you know, it's a beautiful country. It's a really beautiful place. And the thing that I couldn't, I I have a video that I'll play for you of these like 19 and 20 year olds in a bar. First of all, everybody's out drinking, having like celebrating their spirit because it's extraordinary. These 19 and 20 year olds singing these like 100 year old Ukrainian folk songs drunk in this bar was just extraordinary. Yeah, that's the spirit of the country. And even now, which is now is, is kind of unimaginable what they're going through. Zaporizhia was a really good example of, I don't know what else to call it other than Putin's cynicism, but the strategy of uh, responding to military advances by attacking civilian infrastructure. In Zaporizhia, he hit the main hospital, and then the night after he hit the main hospital, he hits an apartment complex in the middle of the night when they're sure that there are people sleeping in their beds and are going to need medical care. And that's the big the big, big issue for Ukrainians right now is medical infrastructure. I mean, he's not only decimated the energy grids and all of the other stuff that they're relying on to stay alive and warm through this winter. And as you know, the temperatures in Ukraine after December into January are all sub-zero. And, but they've hit, he's hit all of the medical infrastructure. So it's alarming. And it's just more important than ever that we continue to provide them with the aid that they need to keep that machine running. Most of these doctors, too, by the way, have been working since February, you know, with no shifts off. Things like fixators for limbs, ambulances, operating tables, all this stuff is really, really essential. And that's part of why I agreed to be the ambassador for the President's Fund, which is United 24, in the medical aid capacity. Back in June, Humanitarian Outcomes, which is a sort of aid watchdog organization out of UK published a report that said of the $2.6 billion that have been donated to Ukraine, only 6 million had been activated and given to the NGOs on the ground who are fighting. That's an alarming, an alarming number. Um, and it goes where? To Red Cross and big organizations like big that? multinationals, Big multinationals who have big overhead and can't even operate in country because of the liabilities, right? They can also, because they're multinational, decide where they want to send that money and sit on it as long as they want to when you've got a very acute situation. And so for us, that was a huge sign that we were doing the right thing, that going directly to the NGOs, going directly to the people working on the ground is the way to do it. Liev Schreiber, if you appreciate conversations that educate and inform on the Ukrainian conflict, listen to my episode with Bryce Wilson, a freelance photojournalist who reported from the front lines of Ukraine. I was at Zelensky's inauguration. It's very surreal for me to have seen this huge narrative of his character, quite literally a character because he has an acting background. And he, in my opinion, will be remembered in the same vein as famous Ukrainian poets, people who were invested in the idea of Ukraine's independence. Like Zelensky, in my opinion, is a hero through his leadership. Hear more of my conversation with Bryce Wilson at heresthething.org. 
After the break, Liev Schreiber shares the story of being invited to meet Ukraine's President Zelensky. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Through its donation network, Blue Check Ukraine provides direct financial assistance to NGOs in Ukraine that offer crucial services such as emergency medical care, food distribution, and mental health services. I was curious to hear how the Ukrainian people reacted to the presence of Blue Check at a time of such turmoil. They were so grateful they were. that we were there. They were so happy to see us that that, that, that they couldn't believe you came. That Americans cared. That that, that that we were willing to even just to be there. They didn't know what I was going to do. You know, I'm, I'm that guy from Ray Donovan. They knew who you were. I'm sure the intelligent <laughs> ones were like, "What the hell is this actor going to do?" Yeah, right. Is Ray Donovan going to go punch Putin in the face? Right, exactly. He's going to bring the bat out. Yeah, yeah. But it, it just it made me even more convinced that I had to really be effective and not waste their fucking time. Not go in there and just hear their side their stories and sorry that's okay and come back and be like hey guys look what I did hmm. you know what I mean cause that you went back again yeah I went back again so you went three times and then the second time what was the, the I don't want to say mission but what was the itinerary then you were going to go where and do what I was going to meet the president <laughs> Yeah, you're goddamn right you are. Yeah. Like, let's fucking mess around here. Well, he heard about us because of that humanitarian outcomes report, which he was also pretty pissed off about, too. And uh, and he invited me to become an ambassador for United 24. And, you know, we talked about how That's we, based out of where? That's Kiev. That's his. That's, yeah, that's his, his personal fund wow. for Ukraine. And it's broken into three tiers. Initially, it was a conflict for me because— Part of what we were trying to set up was something that was what's considered neutral aid. In other words, it doesn't participate in any political or military stuff. So they were really great to us, and they carved out the medical aid piece, which is what I represent. It was an extraordinary experience. And I was in Kiev. I got to see Bordianka. I got to see Bucci. I got to see all of these things that we've, we've seen on television, on the news, and now I know, I know what it looks like. And I got to see also... Uh, all of the extraordinary help that all of these other countries are giving right. and lending. Then Adam Driver and I went to uh, Romania and saw the troops who were who were stationed there preparing and training and, you know, all the typhoon pilots there. Does anybody tell you what they'd like the U.S. to do? 
like like in a long term sense, other than relief and aid and sidewinder missiles or whatever the fuck they want in the world. The yeah, SAMs are what we really need. The, whatever the, the whatever the global community can provide them in terms of weaponry, in a more long term sense, do they want to join NATO? Do they want to be in NATO? Of course they yeah, do. They, they always be, have. Right. I think that's pretty much what started Maidan was that there was this collective sense of relief and excitement about joining the European Union and NATO and all of that. And uh, Yanukovych and the Russians never had any intention of letting that happen. And, of course, he buried it. And that's what caused the uprising. People from everywhere, I mean, hundreds of thousands. Of, there's a really terrific film called Winter on Fire, if anyone wants to know about that period that is just extraordinary, that tells that whole story very clearly. And it was just amazing to see children, old people, people from every walk of life just come out of their houses, pour out into the streets and go to the go to Maidan and, and say no. And they stayed there. And, you know, people were people died and were shot at and they barricaded themselves. It was I mean, you know, revolution. <laughs> and since then they've been rebuilding their government and trying to get rid of the corruption and the the Russian influence. Setting aside what people would like to have happen, what do people over there, what do they think is going to happen long term? They think they're going to win. They're going to win. They're going to drive them out of there. Yeah, they're right. <laughs> <laughs> they are, they're right. You know what I mean? It's unsustainable. Right. It's like, it's this thing that I, you know, I, I got to, you know when, you, when your kids lie, it's like the best thing that I've ever thought to tell my kids when they lie is like, it's okay, but think about the moment when you get caught in the lie and what that's going to feel like. And if you still want to tell the lie, tell the lie. I wish I could say that to Putin. <laughs> right. Think about the moment when you get caught. What's that going to feel like? And the reality is it's starting to happen. And that's, that's what I think. And I've always felt that civil unrest in Russia and the sanctions, if we can hold out, if we can stand it, are going to be, there's going to be daylight. You know, the bedrock of Russian nationalism are the mothers of these conscripts who got wiped out in the first wave. They went to the military academies and they said to them, they said, please don't send our kids. They're 18-year-old kids. Don't send them. Of course, we're not going to send them. Who do you think was in that first wave? And where are those kids now? They're gone. So those mothers are now coming out in the street. And that's not like the liberals or the progressives or the elitists or the... The opposition, that's his bedrock. That's his base. And I think it's unsustainable. It's, that's the beauty of it. I mean, at least I think. Just lies are unsustainable. It's just it's eventually, and history bears it out, eventually they come out. Well, it's funny because as an American, and therefore having grown up on a legacy of those people that don't work, Inside the American system, we kill them or we we depose them. The Allende, DM, all around the globe. This is the American way of doing things. So you you kind of sit back and go, I mean, you know, they're never going to get Putin. They're not going to kill Putin. But you wonder how much longer he's got to last over there. Do they realize that he's really kind of losing it? I think. And the Russians are always everything looks great, or everything looks okay, or everything doesn't look dire. Until the day before the guy's gone. Like, like in a day, boom, the guy's gone. You know what I mean? And you just get so sick and tired of the, the beyond the death and beyond the injuries and the casualties. It's just the psychological toll. A whole generation of Ukrainian people are going to live now with watching their country just get smashed to pieces by for, for no reason. You know, they, they didn't have to deserve that. Wasn't, they didn't have that coming. You know? well, are you going to go back again? Yeah. Yeah. Whenever they need me. When you met Zelensky, how did he strike you? I wish I wish you could meet this guy because you, you, I just knowing you personally for some time now, I know that you would love this guy. Right. That would be a hilarious encounter. He's incredibly sharp and he has a tremendous sense of humor. Unfortunately, not all of his translators are as good. And so what happens is you kind of have to listen to him in Russian to get how smart he is and how good a public speaker he is. There's a kind of courage there that I just don't understand. There's a kind of strength of character that I think 
people have seen and meeting him, you know, he's he's really he's pretty short. Uh, and taking a picture with him, I found myself you tough. Know, tr- yeah, but tough, like a pit bull, and he looks like that. And I remember one journalist that we were. This is a conversation before we actually met in person. The journalist and I were doing a Zoom with him, and the, the journalist asked him, you know, there have been twelve attempts on your life in the in the past few months, and what what's that like, Mister President? One of those questions, you know. And the guy's timing. And this is all, because I'm thinking like an actor. I'm watching. How's he going to feel this one? Because this is good. And his timing was just, he stopped for a second and he looked at the camera. Because, you know, he's by himself in a Zoom. And in Russian, because I didn't listen to the translator. The translator was stumbling through it. But in Russian, and if you can imagine me doing English-Russian, because I can't speak Russian. He was like, to tell you the truth, the first couple of times it scared the shit out of me. But then you get used to it. <laughs> What choice do you have? And that was that was that was the guy for me. And that and that when when I asked him my question, which was if you could speak to the people in America and around the world who were considering supporting Ukraine financially or otherwise, what would you say to them? His response was just completely inspiring to remind us that we all share this desire for democracy. That it's not an easy system, right? And that's what my brother said. My brother said, these wars are inevitable, right? It's like a snake shedding its skin. They just happen over and over again. But it's part of a democracy. It's part of the horror of democracy that we have to fight for it. But it's still the best system in the world. And that's the thing I love about being American, you know. Anyone who's down on their luck anywhere in the world, this is the place they come if they want a shot. Because we've still got the best system, you know. And so we've got we've to cherish it. We've got we've to take care of it. We've got to nurture it. Because it's the best. We're trying. Yeah. There were things that were interesting, you know, like people voting for candidates and not voting for parties. I thought that was positive. And I thought building on that stuff, like, let's get smart. Let's figure out what do you want? Vote for it. You know, who do you want? Vote for them. And that, it's, it's, that's the future, you know. And that, I think there were enough moderate Republicans who went to the polls, and they. You know, I'm using my words, obviously, but they were like, we really maybe need to have a little less crazy town for a while. Yeah. So... You have this operation, Blue Check, and someone you work with, they're determining, you've got people on the ground, where that money's going to and picking the local NGOs where the money's going to go. Yeah, we do that. And what we do is, well, we also, you know, now because we're working very closely with the Ukrainian government and the health ministry in particular, Viktor Lyashko and the deputy minister, what we agreed the best thing to do was to, to create a portfolio of NGOs that would cover every base, Right. So it's, you're not always just doing shelter. Sometimes you're doing medical aid. Sometimes you're doing elderly people. One of, the, one of my favorite groups that we found is called Sterenki. And what Sterenki does is they help uh, homebound elderly people. Because, you know, you see these videos of, like, these little villages getting bombed out. And they're just full of old people who didn't want to leave their houses, right? The young people can go sleep on couches in Lviv and Kiev. But the old people are like, what do I got, 20 years? Fuck them. I'm going to stay here. This is my home. And you really see that attitude in elderly Ukrainians. They're like, we've been through everything. We've been through so much over the course of our lives. I'm not giving up my home. I'm not going to leave my animals. I'm not going to leave. And so these people are are the ones who are bearing the brunt of a lot of the frontline attacks and assaults. And so Sterenki is an organization that really just focuses on elderly people, homebound elderly people, and taking care of them. We have the Women's Center, which obviously now, because of all the men who are at war, that was a group that used to be a watchdog organization for gender equality and rights in the workplace and sexual abuse and all these other things. And they immediately transitioned into a kind of shelter for women, single moms and children, and were just terrific in the, in the first few months of the war. We've got the Lviv Symphony, which is a food distribution. We've got Leaky 24, which is an organization that makes sure that people are able to get prescriptions. You know, like people forget that in the midst of war, you still need things like insulin. You know, schools, we've got a great group called Toller Space. And what they do is they educate teachers on how to talk to kids about what's going on. Ukraine needs you 24-7 mental health hotline, which is kind of a, a cultural thing because, you know, for many people in Ukraine, it's a real sort of patriarchal macho society and the idea that you get through these things with vodka is yeah. you got to you know we're pushing back against that but the idea was that if we had a diverse enough portfolio we would be able to cover any given base at any given time and now I'm also working with a group called Superhumans which was started by a guy named Andrei Stavnitzer 
who is a um, really successful businessman in Ukraine whose house was bombed and destroyed. And, and his response is to say, I'm going to build a hospital for uh, Ukrainians that focuses on prosthetics and things like that. Because that's a huge issue, unfortunately, for children as well. But uh, getting fixators and things like that to people, you know, they've lost. You can't fly there, right? So if someone gets injured, it's not like you can medevac them out. Liev Schreiber. If you're enjoying this conversation, be sure to subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Liev Schreiber discusses his acting career and shares his perspective on transitioning to the small screen with Ray Donovan. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. With dynamic roles in everything from X-Men Origins to remakes of modern horror classics like The Omen, some listeners forget that Schreiber is a classically trained thespian well-versed in the bard. Considering Schreiber's pedigree, I wanted to know if helming an Emmy-nominated show like Ray Donovan had ever been a goal. No, I thought I was going to do classical theater for the rest of my life because my whole strategy was big fish, small pond. There wasn't a lot of people who wanted to do Shakespeare, and I wanted to do Shakespeare. I liked it. $500 a week was fine. (laughs) (laughs) I'll make it work. You know, my education up through graduate school, like RADA and Yale, was nothing compared to the education I got working and meeting people like you and Dustin and people who I thought made really strange and interesting choices. You know, because I fought off that thing, that perfect verse thing. You're being kind to me right now, and you know it. I, f- I was fighting off. Well, you know what we said backstage about you? What? I said, I would try to speak, you know, in my normal voice. I said, and you guys are all doing this English thing. And I said, and of course, Liev speaks Liev. You had your own language you spoke, <laughs> your own dialect. Yeah, you're being kind again. Because I, I, you know as well as I do that I was fighting off that English training, that I was fighting off that perfect verse, right. rise the end of the line, hook it around, open vowels. And what I, what I loved about you and what I loved about your king was this guy. It wasn't about his voice. It all came from his pelvis. It all came from his junk. And I was like, that's the way to play this guy. And by the way, I borrowed it when I played him a couple of years later. But it was so physical. 
and in all the actors that I've loved and that I've learned from, it just are so physical. There was this guy, Michael Potts, when he was playing Lucio, who's like the pimp from Measure for Measure. He did this little thing with his fingers like this. I stole it for Ricky Roma in uh, Glengarry Glen Glen Ross. And uh, he used to just constantly doing this thing with his fingers. I, I loved the way he did that with his fingers. And I said to Michael, what are you doing? He said, I don't know. I just, he's counting money. And I was like, oh, okay. And, it's, and you had that thing. What I loved about that performance is my interpretation of what you were doing is all of that murdering that he was doing out in the field was just his sex drive. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the irony and what was so beautiful about it is that when it came down to Duncan, he couldn't get it up. He couldn't do it. And that, I thought that was just such a compelling performance. The slingshot of the queen, my lord, is dead, and the rage and the, what, I, what I took from that which was so valuable to me, was the rage and the chaos and the insanity and the ferocity. And it's so perfectly written because it delivers to tomorrow and tomorrow. The best. And tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. And the guy's shattered. I would tell people that in that production, I said, you, Michael Hall, Zach Braff. Michael. Wow. Zach Braff. Yeah. I said, there's a few guys in that production in 1998. They went on to kick some ass and take some names. Zach Braff was a kid. Remember that? Braff was a kid. I stab him with the sword, and I say, I'm not going to pull the sword out. I say, if it's cool with you, I'm going to put my boot on your shoulder, and I'm going to peel you off my sword. Then I want you to drop that. I never visit Zach Braff. looked at me. He was like... That's so fucking sick, man. It's really sick. (laughs) I go, yeah, I want to just peel you off my sword. Now, when you describe for me, you're making films and you start to star in films. Give me an example of one that creatively was really, really a joy for you. What's a film you made? And you're making the film and you're going, I I love this. Two of them. One was the first one was Day Trippers that Greg Matola directed. That it was just I'd never met a group of actors that solid. It was uh, Stanley Tucci. It was Hope Davis. It was Parker Posey. It was Ann Mira. It was uh, just an ex- a Campbell Scott. It was, and I had you know I had no the Algonquin Roundtable. Yeah, independent right. film actors. Yeah. And I had no experience <laughs> making films, and and here was this sort of altruistic. It was like, you know, back in the 90s when independent film was kind of having its heyday. And here was this incredible ensemble of actors just giving it over to each other. You got to work together. No one's a star here. You know, you got to work together. And here were a bunch of, like, really stellar actors just doing it. And it felt so good because we weren't getting paid. There was something altruistic about it. and There was something generous about it. And it happened to me again in a movie called Spotlight. And it was just... uh, extraordinary uh, piece of writing on Tom and, and Josh's part. And it was something that I felt very connected to because of, you know, the time I'd spent doing Ray. And, you know, at some at some level, the core of Ray is about a guy who's been spun by his priest. And the detail and the, um, the restraint that they showed in depicting journalists and what they do and their value to our society, I just thought was incredible. And every actor in that was like... A Sammy Sosa for me it was like everybody, everybody in that was just so good. And when they came to you to do the series, because you'd never done a series regular before, correct? And when they came to you to do, because when I was asked to do a series, when we did 30 Rock, I remember sitting there shooting the pilot. I'm going, I don't want to fucking do this thing. <laughs> they, they, bring me a, they bring me a fresh iced coffee every 15 minutes. Well, this is nice. It's cozy. They got every, everybody's lovely. The whole thing's really very pleasant. But I don't think I can come here and say this and be this guy. And the next thing you know, we come and by season two, it's a different show. Like we had to find our way, but by season two, they start to win everything and they're writing and they're winning all the writing Emmys and blah, blah, blah. How did they get you to do that show? Who was responsible for you doing that show? My kids, you know? I mean, Naomi was a huge star. We were traveling all around the world, going to different countries and making making movies. movies. Yeah, making movies. And, you know, it just felt like her career was really solid and... You know, me doing plays wasn't really going to work out because you don't get weekends, eight shows a week. And that would mean that I would have to stay in New York because that's where I want to do plays, really, if I'm going to do plays. So when you go do the TV show, your kids, kids, they want you to stay home? We've got kids, and the kids are now of of an age where it's time to go to school. And so I said to Nate, where do you want to live? 
New York, L.A., and she's got this beautiful house, Sally Field's old house, and, you know, she's built this life, and I'm like, all right, I'll go to L.A., you know, I'll commit the cardinal sin, and I'll, uh, I'll go to L.A. So I told my agents to start looking for a television show that would, that would shoot in L.A. so that we could live in that, that house and be there, and they found me this show about this Boston fixer who'd been abused by a priest, and he had this really tight family situation, and he was interacting in the Hollywood scene, and... It all seemed like nonsense to me, but the the, the woman and Bingaman who who, I remember. who I wrote talked to her. It, yeah, who wrote it was just extraordinary and just so intelligent. And she got the hook though, and she stuck it in me, and I was like, "All right, I'm this is perfect. Let's do it." And I, I didn't expect anything to happen. We did the pilot, and I was like, "Okay, that was fun. Like, <laughs> I guess I blew that," and it just grew and grew and grew. One of the things that I I think again is like because they let me have a say in some of the casting, it, it really, I was able to put people in it that I really felt good about and trusted. And they, they helped with that as well. But I just, that cast, just just day after day blew me It away. was similar in, in, in the way where you have everybody. It was a great cast. And everybody was perfect and, and distinctive. I mean, everybody had a certain distinctive energies. And hard workers too. Like everybody worked hard. Eddie, we tried to get Eddie, Eddie to Marson. come. In. I tried to get Eddie to come to a play with me here in New York. Oh yeah, you yeah, should. We begged. We you begged. should. Well, he doesn't want to leave his family. He's much, he's got that situation. Yeah. yeah. But the way he pursued, the way he went after Parkinson's, the oh, way he God. went after everything, how hard he worked, Dash, the way he would swing for the fences with Bunchy and Paula, who harnessed all of that real Irish rage <laughs> that she's got, and it, it just every actor and. Karis, the woman who played my daughter, just like... Oh, for you with the show, you saw Aliyev you never saw before on that show. You know, an unbridled kind of, I don't want to say masculinity. I saw that character as, I saw him as just pure vulnerability. You know, like the most vulnerable character I've ever played in my life. And that the culture that he comes from, it's unacceptable. And so he steeled himself up. He's pretending. He's pretending. He's trying to exist for others because he can't tolerate himself. I love that. You know what I mean? And that, and that for me, in many, in many ways, is kind of a, a central theme on, on, in being a man and how to be a man. That just my grandfather, you know, my grand, Ukrainian grandfather who kind of raised me, you know, was just, he was such a tough bastard. And he never, he never talked about where he was from, which is part of my obsession with Ukraine and all of this stuff. He never admitted that he could speak any other languages other than American. He never admitted what he'd been through or what he'd seen or what he'd lost. And there was a kind of determination and, and principled tenacity towards being something, being American. And he hated Germans. Like, that's the only thing that showed. He hated everything German, German cars, German beer, until my oldest brother got a German girlfriend. And suddenly he loved Germans and everything German. But there was a kind of, you know, if I didn't open the door for somebody, I got a smack in the back of the head. If I, I had a fight with my brother's girlfriend and I, I threw a jellyfish at her and he, he I, I can't, I don't even want to say what he did to me, but it, he was that person that was trying to give me some character and strength. And then I heard from my mother this story about how he had been in love after everything, been in love with this younger woman who left him in the middle of his life that just devastated him. And I, it was that thing I, I just, the, what are these qualities of masculinity? And I think Anne was very interested in that too because I think Anne's, She's writing her brothers, she's writing her father, she's writing her lovers in Ray Donovan. And what is it about men that compels her, that makes her, that's so interesting? And, and for me, it was like this idea of, you know, in all good characters, and you know this, it's like, it's duality, right? It's juxtaposition. It's, if you think a character's something, you better go look in the complete opposite direction. So... Ray was written as this incredibly tough guy who could just kick everybody's ass and, you know, used as few words as possible. And once I got the part, there were even less words. But in reality, he's stuck at the moment when he was sexually assaulted by this priest when he was a seven-year-old kid. And that's the person who's really just dying to come out all of the time. And that's the person who's so violent. That's where the violence comes from. In my opinion, violence is a, is a product of fear more often than not, you know, which is 
which is how I see what's happening with Putin. He's backed into a corner. He doesn't know how to get out. He doesn't know how to get out. Yeah. Quick shout out to Bill Heck. I've rarely seen an actor play the younger version of a character as beautifully as he did. He was... Uh, he had everything you needed to do Voight. I mean, he was Voight as a young... I loved him. David, I loved him. David and I wrote the movie mostly because we were so blown away by Bill Heck. We're like, you know, let's let this guy just take the show. Yeah, and in the, the act- bar. And the young actor was playing me. We just thought these actors were so good. He was just extraordinary, everybody in that, but particularly Bill, just that he just, he has that kind of, you know, that's the thing that, that Voight does that not many other people can do is the charm. Like, he just does charm better than anybody I've ever seen, and thank God we found Bill Heck. Yeah, he was great. Two quick things. I don't get to see you that often. We have uh, crazy lives, but I want to say, when I saw that show, it just confirmed what I always knew about you, and that is, there's nothing you can't do. Drama, comedy, shake, whatever, there's nothing you can't do. And then number two, I'm very proud of you about this Ukraine thing. Good for you, man. Thank to go you. there and, and show up that way. Thank you. And I, I really, really, really appreciate you giving us the time to, to tell people about it. My thanks to Liev Schreiber. You can donate to Blue Check Ukraine at bluecheck.in. This episode was recorded at CDM Studios in New York City. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Our social media manager is Danielle Gingrich. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.